I was struck in a good way in a pastor's heart to see that one of our youngsters wanted to be with mom on stage just before the service started. It reminded me of a time when I was at the church before this church, be 30 years ago almost, maybe 28, 29, and our youngest saw me up there starting to make the announcements of that day, and she's always been safe in her daddy's presence, and so she just hopped up on stage and walked up and stood next to me. And so I just picked her up and held her in my arms, and we did the announcements together. And then I had a grandpa moment because when our family came up from South Carolina one time, my grandson did the very same thing. So apparently the announcements get into your genes, and it's just a part of it. But it's another sign of church health. And when I walked in and I saw babies around and a toddler helping set up, I thought, oh, this is what church should be like. (laughs) And I love it. And I'm so delighted to see that we have young families and that they're bringing their kids and that the kids are learning to serve already. And I'm excited to share what uh, God's put on my heart in this series called Time for a Change because it has to do with the kind of changes that help us learn to serve other people especially. So let's look at that. Uh, If you'd like, we're going to camp out quite a bit in just a couple of verses in Romans, both chapters 7 and 8. So that's where we're going to be going if you need to turn to that in whatever form you brought your Bible. Today's title is Changing Destructive habits, especially self-destructive habits. We're going to see how God can allow us to become set free from those self-destructive habits that tend to plague us, and all of us struggle with them. I reminded you last week of the purposes of our church, and I want to show you where this specific thing comes in terms of which purpose we're helping to fulfill as we're learning to allow God's Spirit to transform us away from these self-destructive habits. This one falls under the part of personal growth and maturity called discipleship. As we are disciples of Christ, we're followers of, of him, we're doing that so that he can transform us to become more and more like him in character. And as we do that, then we're able to express his glory to others because it becomes natural. It's just as natural as breathing, and people see Christ in us. So they're not drawn to some charismatic personality type. They're drawn to Jesus who resides in us. And that's what we would like to see happen, and it's a gradual process, and so we're going to continue to remind ourselves that we're still in process like that. I'm not nearly what I'm going to be, but I'm not nearly what I used to be, and I'm grateful that God continues to be patient in helping us down that road. So to lay a foundation for this concept, if you're ready to dive in, say, I'm ready. Okay, thank you. To lay a foundation for this concept, let's remind ourselves of this important truth. The greatest enemy is you. I've already mentioned this in a series so far, that we human beings have a tendency to run away from conflict, to run away from problems, whether it be an organization that we belong to that's got some difficulties, so we think, well, I'm just going to go join that other organization. Or a relationship, I'm just going to leave this relationship and I'll pick up on the other side, we'll start over. Or maybe it's uh, some kind of a job and you're thinking, I don't know if I can put up with this job much longer. And so we change jobs. And I'm also going to remind you of something that my father-in-law used to say, the wise man that he was. He used to say, no matter where you go, there you are. Which means that if we don't address the biggest problem first, which is usually us, If we're not really understanding the best changes need to happen inside us, then if we're leaving a situation or a job or a relationship and we take the same stuff that we've been doing into that new situation, 
what's going to change? Maybe nothing. Now, and I also mentioned this, and this is a caveat, it's also important to know that sometimes we need to leave a particular organization. If there's bad things happening there or immorality or things that are going on, so I'm not saying we should never leave. But I'm saying we need to be discerning about finding out where the real problem usually lies when it comes to trying to make life better around us, and it starts with us. So here's something that we should know by now. I hope we do, but it's a good reminder, and that is that if you're a believer, if you have said, yeah, I'm going to trust Christ with my life, I want to get to know him better so he can change me, then you've got two natures inside of you. We all do. There's the flesh or the fleshly nature, according to the Apostle Paul, and he also calls that the sinful nature. We find that in Romans chapters 5 and 6. And the reason for this term fleshly is that we can see that we inherited this fleshly nature from the first Adam. That was the guy, the first guy, the first human being on the planet. And because he was flesh and because he inherited, he didn't inherit it, he started that sin nature. They chose to sin. Every other human being after that has that same sin nature. So we have the fleshly nature. We've also mentioned that the first Adam is contrasted with the last Adam, who is Jesus Christ. And that's because he is the one that, even though he is spirit, he took on the body like ours, although it was not sinful. And he's the one who can conquer sin and death once and for all. And so the first Adam brought sin into the world. The last Adam took care of that problem for us. And that's why we trust him. So... Paul talks a lot about that tug of war that goes on inside each of us because of these two natures. So we've got that new nature, the spiritual nature, if we've trusted Christ. That's the second one. Fleshly nature on one side, the spiritual nature or the spirit nature on the other. And we find that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. And he talks about that tug of war, especially toward the end of chapter 7 of Romans. And he says... Put on the new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. He's saying that we get this new nature, but it's not a one and done. It's not like you're just taking one dose of a mega pill and then suddenly you're sin free and you don't have to worry about it the rest of your life. It's more like a time release capsule and you need to be continually renewed day by day. Even though you have been saved, you are being saved and it's a Yes, I took the first step, but now there's the sanctification that's happening over the remainder of my life. And so this new nature needs to be renewed. And it takes a lifetime. It's a lifelong, continued transformation, a lifelong learner as we're learning to be more and more like Christ. The old nature wants to do things that are opposed to what Jesus wants. It's not necessarily good. The old nature is the kind of nature that wants us to do things that are maybe exhilarating or maybe temporarily satisfying. Maybe it would lessen our anxiety for a moment or two. Maybe it's dangers or thrill-seeking or whatever because we're just looking for that fix of some chemicals in the brain that make us feel alive for the moment but it's not bringing true, lasting life the way Jesus does. And we know that we're going to be in a tug of war like that, just as Paul was. You and I both know there are some things that we probably should know that are good for us, and yet we choose not to do some of them like that. And yet we also know that there are things that are not healthy for us, and yet we choose to do those things anyway. Uh, in one of my early jobs when I was in high school, I was a burger flipper in a burger joint and there was a guy that I used to work with and he would look at the clock and when we didn't have a rush going on and he had a time to take a real quick break he would pat the pocket of his shirt where there were some cigarettes there and he'd say okay I'm on break 
I'm going to go drive in another nail in my coffin. <laughs> he knew it was bad for him. They'd done enough research by then that he knew it was probably not healthy for him to do that, but he chose to keep doing that. And we all have habits that we know are probably not great for us. They're not healthy. And I'm not just picking on that one habit. I'm not trying to cherry pick specific things like that. I'm saying that in our nature, we all know that there are certain things that we want to do them, but we don't, and there are things that we don't want to do that we do, and that's what Paul talks about in Romans 7. While I was in school, I had a hard time sitting still. I don't know if some of you have recognized that or not, that I think probably I would have been, I'm sure I would have some sort of a diagnosis if they would do that today. They didn't back then. But if I had to sit in a quiet library for a long time, you know, like five minutes, 10 minutes, which was an eternity, I just felt like I needed to jump up on a table and say something loudly because I just couldn't stand to stay still. Now, I loved a couple of the teachers I had because I think they probably had a lot of that same nervous energy that I possess, and so they knew how to make learning fun. Mr. Nelson, sixth grade, he was great. He would give us activities where we would go and make volcanoes and stuff, and it was very action-oriented. He'd send us out on the playground and let us jump our jiggles out so when we came back in the room, we were exhausted enough to focus for a while. Those were great teachers. They understood that we all learn differently. And not everybody is a mean, lean, quiet, introverted learning machine. Some of us don't fit that mold. So what I'm saying is there are certain times when you just want to do these things because they're impulsive and they're a part of, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's what Paul wrestled with. Uh, this is an aside, but we were taking a group of men up to Bambi Lake near Roscommon in the lower part of Michigan. It's right up there by the middle finger knuckle. And we were going to do a men's retreat, and we stopped off at Tony's. That was a place in Birch Run. They used to have these, you'd order bacon, and it came like in a pile. It was like a bucket of bacon. And if you could treat your friends to something, you would say, you know, they have pretty small portions. I think you should order double. <laughs> and then they would have this pile of food. But anyway, we were there. And one of my friends knew that I had pulled this prank one time, and he said, uh, I want you to do that thing that you told me about. And I said, what thing? He goes, you know, that thing. Oh, I know what you're talking about. And I looked around, and I saw this very busy place. And a lot of them were other guys stopping off at Tony's from other churches heading up to do the men's retreat. And there were some total strangers, too. But I thought, I think this is probably an acceptable place to do that. And so in this busy, busy restaurant, I stood up on my chair. And I said, excuse me. Pardon me. May I have your attention, please? And it got really, really quiet. I said, Thank you, and sat down, and we continued. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to have fun, you know? You just got to do it. So that's a part of my fleshly nature, and I've been working on that. I, I haven't done that since that specific time. I don't think Joy would allow me to do that. But. So what I want us to do today is to examine four of the most common, if you were to kind of do a survey, I think these are the most common self-destructive weapons that tend to plague us. And when I say us, I mean even believers who have these both natures, because we still struggle with this tug of war. So these are the four that I think are probably at the top of the list, if you could make a short list, weapons of self-destruction. There's shame, compulsions, fear, and bitterness. Shame is that emotion that's caused when you feel like, yeah, I've done something wrong, and I'm really guilty, and I'm not sure quite what to do to rectify that, but I just feel ashamed. And then that shame sticks with you long past that initial stage of guilt that strikes you. Shame can hang around for a long time. It's that nagging awareness that you're falling short, 
that you don't add up, that you're inadequate. Now, Adam and Eve knew when they sinned that they needed to be ashamed because they knew they were wrong. And what did they do? They tried to hide themselves from God. But it's like that old Negro spiritual song, Oh, sinner man, where you gonna run to? You know, rock's not gonna hide you. You can't hide from God. You can't do that because he's gonna see you no matter where you go. And no matter where they went, there they were and God saw them. So the only way for them to get rid of that shame was for God to cover their shame. And we see some good things that start to propel us into the gospel narrative that we know about today. So false shame, however, can also follow us around. That can happen, especially from some people who have been in abusive relationships. And you've got people who are projecting their own sense of inadequacy or their own failures onto somebody else. So if there is false shame and somebody walks around with a feeling like they've done something wrong, even though they haven't, but they're allowing somebody else to heap that kind of shame on them, that can be difficult. And after people have gotten away from relationships, relationships like that, it can take literally years of recovery as they continue to walk this road with Christ and to remind themselves, no, that's not how Jesus sees me. He forgives me. He loves me. He cares for me. This is not who I am. It takes a long time for us to get past some of that false shame too. One thing we know from the Bible is God does not want us to walk around feeling ashamed. That steals that satisfaction. It steals the happiness that he wants to have in his children. And so, fortunately, he has made a way for us. And we're going to talk about that after we finish this quick run-through on these other weapons of self-destruction. Second one is compulsion. Call them uncontrolled actions or inner desires or appetites or habits or whatever. But these are the compulsions, are those things that make you feel like, mm, but I just had to do that. I watched one guy who had heart surgery and he, they just rebuilt him from the inside out, man. I mean, he had like quadruple bypass. And he knew from the doctors that he needed to change his diet because he had a horrible diet before that heart surgery. But I watched him struggle with these inner compulsions. And you could see him looking at that biscuits and gravy. And he'd be going, oh, I know what the doctor said, but man, I feel like I really got to get that. And he'd dive in for some more biscuits and gravy. It's some of these things that are the inner desires or compulsions that make us want to go ahead and do that thing, even though we're having that tug of war inside and we give in to them. And that's that, that compulsive spirit. We kind of see some of that compulsion happening in Simon Peter if we start appearing, uh, or appearing, start looking at some of his biography all through the New Testament. He was a pretty compulsive character, and God was able to start transforming that in him too. You know what these are like. Uh, those of you parents, especially if you had brothers that you've been raising, I had grandchildren, and I've been watching them at times when you know when they're little bitty and big brothers walking past little brother, and there's just this compulsion to say, you know, if I stick my foot out right now, I bet I could trip little brother. So it's just like, boop. What causes that? It's a compulsion that you just want to give in to that inner desire, and it's just going to jump out. Oh, I couldn't help it, but I did it, and it felt good. That's compulsion, and it happens to every one of us. Not that we trip people, but just the compulsion in general. We all have to learn how to win over compulsions if we're going to find the satisfaction that we need in Christ and so that we can reflect him more adequately to other people. Fear is another one, third, third, that's three. Fear will wreck our happiness it will just destroy our happiness. We're not meant to live in fear. It steals our sense of security. It steals our satisfaction in life. It steals reasons to celebrate. And when we live 
in fear with a sense of foreboding on, on all of us, it just steals everything that God wants for us because he came to give life and to give it more abundant. And living in fear is not an abundant life. Bitterness is the fourth. This one, if I could put one that I think is probably the most common that I see, especially in pastoral counseling, it's probably this one. Bitterness afflicts so many people. It's another self-destructive weapon. We wind up hurting ourselves far more than the people we're angry at. Always. It's that toxin inside of us that even after the person may have moved away and they've been gone for a long time, if we're still holding bitterness against that person, who's the one who's getting hurt? We are. Bitterness will continue to just destroy our happiness. Now, I'm sure that you've all heard this said. It's fairly common that you can, when you've been hurt, you can either get better or you can get bitter. And what we're learning, especially in Romans chapter 8, is that we don't have to get bitter. We can learn how to get better. Those who hang on to bitterness continue down that uh, eternal spiral of blame on other people. And it just takes you down. Something happened on my way to church today that was a really kind of fun little thing. I was driving up from Willis Road past the little detention pond on my left. It's just across from the Performing Arts Center. You know the pond I'm talking about. And it took about three weeks when I first started seeing these blue herons standing there. And I thought, wow, we've attracted blue heron in there. And the second week I thought, they haven't moved much. And the third week I thought, they haven't moved at all. And I pulled up right next to it to see if they'd move. And they're decoys, blue heron decoys. They're fake. And then there are also two pairs of swans, these white swans that are out there. And sometimes they would float across. I thought they were swimming across. No, it was just a light breeze. They're tied together with a rope. You know how I found that out? Because after that torrential rain, it raised the level so much that the swans got <laughs> up on the ground. And you could see the rope tied between them. It's like, help get us back in the water. So I thought, well, that's kind of nice. They look pretty, but they're just decoys. But today, on my way up here driving by that pond, I saw a bird I had not seen in there before, and it looks a lot like the blue heron, except it was white, like this one. I grabbed it as I raced home and got this picture off the Internet today. It's a great white heron, uh, egret. It's an egret. And I saw this one, and I thought, oh, they've added another decoy to their collection of decoys. And so I slowed down to look at it, and all of a sudden, this egret goes, it lifted its leg up and starts to walk a little bit. And I thought, whoa, it's alive. <laughs> That's some kind of decoy, let me tell you why. That's so realistic, because it was an actual egret. And I bet you that if it was running around that pond trying to talk to the swan and to the blue heron, it's getting nothing in return. And that egret is probably thinking, this is the dullest pond I've ever been in. These people are so rude. They won't even answer me when I'm saying, hey, how you doing? They just shut me down. And if it continues to hang on to that, it won't be an egret any longer. It'll become a regret. No. No. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Bible passages on these weapons. Let's look at that. Two chapters in the New Testament that help us change these destructive weapons that we use against ourselves. They're found in Romans 7 and 8. And particularly 8 is where we find the results or the anecdote to what he tells us in chapter 7. 7 tells us how these weapons affect us. 8 shows us how to overcome. So 7 and 8 go hand in hand. You need 7 first as a prerequisite. And then when you read 8, you go, okay, I get it. I see what Paul is trying to tell me here. 
Romans 7, 24, he's saying, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and by implication, by self-destruction? You may have felt like that. We all do at times. Sometimes we stay in that feeling longer than others, but we've all felt that, that feeling of, oh, how come I can't change? I want to change, but I can't change, and I feel so inadequate. How can I change this? The answer is not watching another Dr. Phil on TV. It's not watching Oprah. It's not buying the latest self-help book. It doesn't come through any of these current pop culture fixes that we are seeing that are so prevalent. And there's a lot of people selling a lot of books and making a lot of money trying to show us how to make these changes. That's not where the answer lies. It's because the answer lies in a person. Jesus is that answer for us. And that's what Paul is telling us about. Romans 8 contains the answer to his question. Who's going to help me escape from all this stuff? He shows us that it's the power of God's Spirit at work in believers who is available to everybody who trusts him. That's the one who can free us from these self-destructive tendencies. And based on what we see in Romans 8, I'd like for us to walk through just a few uh, a small handful of habits that we can develop. This is the practical application of Romans 8. And these are habits that we can develop that as we do, we're going to put ourselves in a position so that the Spirit can make these changes and help us free, be freed from self-destructive habits. Number one, good habit. Remind myself constantly what Jesus did for me. That's one of the things we do when we gather for worship. And we need to do that regularly because if I sing about it, and if I'm reading about it, if I'm talking with other people who have stories in their own life about how that has been true for them, it's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. Boy, we need reminding. Because it sure is easy for us to start slipping away from remembering all that he did for us. And then we just start heaping on all these self-destructive tendencies. Let's read that first verse of Romans 8, verse 1, together. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. If you can see it up there, let's read it out loud together in the room. If you're at home, feel free and read that too. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. How much condemnation is there? No. None. There's no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now remember that those who are in Christ means that we're covered by him. We are immersed in him, which means we have chosen to place our trust in him, and we're walking in his path. So there's no condemnation for us. He doesn't see us as being guilty any longer. He died to take away that guilt for us. And you and I both know that we have things in our lives that need to be forgiven. That's what can lead to these feelings of inadequacy, of failure, of never measuring up. But because of Paul and what he wrote for us and what I think is probably the greatest treasure in the Bible is Romans chapter 8, we can realize that we don't need to wallow around in that and walk in that feeling of inadequacy any longer. All that judgment that we deserve was taken away by Christ because he heaped all of our sin upon himself. He atoned for our sin. He paid the ultimate price, and he was the only one who could because he's eternal and perfect, the only sacrifice that would last that way. So this is going to affect how we see ourselves. And when we think differently about ourselves, remember that I said at the very beginning, we've got to change our thinking first by putting more of the God's word in our minds. We change the thinking, 
then our actions are going to, we're going to act out what we know to be true, and then the feelings follow. And a lot of times we're motivated by feelings that will lead us down really harmful paths. And if we feel like we're inadequate and we haven't reminded ourselves that Jesus has removed that inadequacy from us because he sees us as perfect, as his child, and he loves us no matter what we've done in our past, then that'll change the way we feel and our actions start to really propel us forward. Your money's no good here is something that I still chuckle about because Joy and I, and I think that was the first time we went to Missouri, so I think Callie was with us then. We met my friend Kevin Stewart uh, at a restaurant, restaurant in Missouri. Now you guys, some of you met Kevin because he brought a handbell choir and a bunch of youth up here to help do some backyard Bible clubs one summer from Missouri. That's Kevin. Kevin uh, is a former... Um, college friend of mine. I started to say roommate because I hung out in his room on North Campus more than I hung out in my own room on South Campus. He and I were like brothers. He was a preacher's kid. He played trombone next to me in marching band. All that stuff just made us feel like we were connected in a brotherhood. So I met Kevin at this restaurant. It's the one where they have the, it's the home of the throwed rolls. You know that one? I love that. This is, it appeals to my ADD nature. Because if you need another roll and they're walking by with a, a freshly baked bunch of rolls, you just hold your hand up, wham, they'll wing one to you. I love the home of the throat roll. So we're going to meet Kevin down there. And I walk in, and Kevin is this kind of boisterous guy. And he says, oh, it's those Yankees. I'm here to tell you that your money ain't good down here. And you know how in the old westerns, you got the piano player who's doing honky-tonk in the corner? And somebody says something when they walk into the saloon doors, and everybody gets quiet, and they all look to see if there's going to be a showdown. Well, that's kind of how everybody reacted when Kevin said, your money is not good down here. And everybody's looking at me, and I'm going, it's not? And the lady behind the counter said, yeah, he's already paid for your meal today. Oh, okay, got it. And the piano player starts playing again. Everybody goes back, (laughs) start playing cards again. It, It was a weird moment, but... I use that to say that that's kind of what we need to remind ourselves, that when we start feeling inadequate, we need to remember that Jesus says, now, your payment's no good here. I've already paid your tab. I've already picked up your bill. I've already paid for all that feeling of inadequacy because you're adequate in my eyes. I see you as a beloved child, so quit living that way and remember what I did for you and just live like you're a child of mine. It changes the attitude. The feelings start to follow. The actions start to flow out of that because we see ourselves differently because we start to see ourselves the way God sees us. And it's amazing how quickly those self-destructive tendencies can start rolling off of us, kind of like off an egret's back or a duck. But if we are self-destructing because we don't feel valued or forgiven, we need reminders. We need to hear Jesus saying, Your payment's no good here. I've already picked up your tab. The phrase belong to Christ is important. That's something I think I need to continue to camp out on just a little bit in Romans 8.1. It means something important because it means that there are certain people that they don't have two natures yet. They're what the Bible would call unregenerate or unregenerated. They haven't been transformed yet. They haven't even started the process because they have continually rejected the voice of the Holy Spirit's call to them. They haven't started the journey by saying, I trust Christ. So the first thing we need to do, if you haven't already made that step, is to take the step of faith and say, I trust Christ. That's a biggie. It's important. Do people who take that step still sin? Oh, yes. I'm afraid so. 
We see a lot of that in the New Testament as well. None of us are perfect, and all of us are going to still struggle, as Paul points out in Romans 7, with that tug of war between the old nature and the new nature. But this time, when we go back to Christ and confess that sin, he says, yep, I've forgiven that one too. In fact, I've paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. So each time you come to me confessing, you're telling me something I already knew. He's not shocked by that. And he says, and I've forgiven you for that one too, so go and sin no more. It's a wonderful thing that changes how we see ourselves, not so that we can get more grace by sinning more. Paul says, no, absolutely not. But when we do slip back into some of that stuff, we always have an advocate pleading our case before the Father, and he'll say, I still love you. I still forgive you. I always will because you're my child. That's a really good thing to know. It was love that kept me alive. Joy and I have talked before about a couple of the young men that God has sent into our life. And one of them went through a really dark period in his life. I mean dark. It was so dark that he really contemplated doing some things that would have been horrible to the people who loved him. But he didn't. And later he said, you know what, I, what kept me going was I knew that my parents loved me. And I knew that God loved me. He hadn't given up on me yet. It was his love that kept me from going darker and darker into those places and that drew me back because I knew that I was his beloved child. And the Bible tells us that. Romans 2.4b says, Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And that's what reminding ourselves of what Jesus did for us does. It helps us see that, yes, we can be drawn back to him. We don't have to keep hiding from him in shame because he wants to take away that shame. That's a good habit. Remind ourselves of what Jesus did. Habit number two, to flesh out Romans chapter 8, remember that you have a power within you that's greater than your willpower. Much greater. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Where's that power? It's the power of the Spirit. Before Christ, we only have our willpower. And some people have a lot of willpower, but it's still not enough. Just exercising our own willpower is not enough to free us from the things that only Christ can free us from. It's not enough to overcome self-destructive habits, many of them. And after turning our lives over to Christ, we have a power within us because our heart and mind is filled up with him so much stronger because he who is within us is so much stronger than he who is in the world. And it's his power at work within us that enables us to be set free from the law of sin and death. And here's this about the, the law. Did you know that obeying the laws cannot save you? It just can't. Keeping laws, even the Jewish laws, let's say just the Ten Commandments. I heard one preacher say, you would ask somebody, do you keep the Ten Commandments? And they say, oh, yes, I can. Name them. <laughs> They say, oh, well, uh, and they could name three or four, maybe five. He said, if you can't even name them, how do you know if you're keeping them or not? The truth is, none of us can keep the laws perfectly. We just can't. The Bible makes that clear. So it reveals to us how far we fall short. The law reveals our sin, but only Jesus can remove that sin. The laws only talk about the external stuff. They're all about outward behavior, but they don't address the inner change that needs to happen, which is the transformation of character. For example, if I were to bring this animal into this building, I'm not sure they would allow me to, for one thing, but if I could bring this animal in and I would, it's all muddy and just, ugh, and I would say, what is this? What would you say? It's a pig. 
It's a pig. If it looks like a pig, if it sounds like a pig, if it smells like a pig, it's a pig. Now, let's say that I could take that pig home and, with my wife's permission, put him in the bathtub, give him a really good scrub down, get one of those little plastic scrubber thingies that make him go, oh, that's the spot right there. And we could give him a nice scented shampoo, herbal essence or something, and then some really nice conditioner that would soften that little pig hair. And then we put on some oil of Olay lotion and really make that skin soft. And I put a little bow around the pig's little head. Then if I were to bring this pig back into the room and show it to you, what would you say it is? <laughs> it's a pig. Anything changed on the inside? No. Why? Because that's the pig's nature. If you put that pig out there where there's a mud hole, guess what that pig's going to do? It's going to roll around in the mud some more because that's its nature. And Paul is showing us in the New Testament, especially in Romans chapter 8, that our nature is literally changed by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we're no longer the person we used to be. He said, quit living like the old nature. You're a newly created, brand new person with a new nature, and that happens on the inside, and that's what drives us and keeps us in the ability to let the Holy Spirit's power change us from these self-destructive habits. So that's the difference between self-help methods and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you could look at the life of the church and the growth in different areas, the churches that are growing the most get this. They understand that the power of the Holy Spirit is what changes us. They don't become program-oriented, where program and policy supersedes people. They're all about the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're growing in droves because they know that it's the Spirit at work within us that transforms us. If you could pass a law, and I think there may be some laws being try, trying to be passed that are similar to this. Pass a law that would say, you are not allowed to be prejudiced toward that other person who is different than you are. Is that going to change what's on the inside of people's hearts? Absolutely not. People are just going to break that law. We can't regulate things by changing laws because we have to change what needs to be changed the most, and that's our character. That's why Paul tells us what I think is the most important thing we need to grasp related to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't regulate it. It's a relationship. He's the one who climbs in here and changes our very nature itself. Peter had that trouble. Even after he was a believer, I told you that Believers still sin once in a while. Even after Christ had died for us, he appeared to many people in, in his resurrected form, and then he ascended to be with the Father. And the apostles went out, they were sharing this good news, and Peter had preached, and he was sharing Christ with others. But he kind of fell back into some bad behavior because he was hanging out with some Gentiles, and they were a little bit different culturally with some of his Jewish friends. But when his Jewish friends came to visit him, he stopped hanging out with the Gentiles for a time. Because he was afraid of the criticism that his Jewish friends were going to bring on him. And Paul took him to task for that. He goes, buddy, what are you doing? You know better than that. You, of all people, should know. You've been telling people that the Holy Spirit has been evidenced in Gentiles' lives, too. The gospel is for everybody, not just for Jews alone. It came first to the children of Israel, but then also it was extended to include the Gentiles. So get out there and love those Gentiles. Don't ignore them. Don't slip back into this prejudicial behavior. And so even through Peter, we can see that his spirit was still being renewed. And that's what God promises to do for us. Remember, here's the third thing we can do, the, the habit, 
the third habit that fleshes out Romans chapter 8. Remember that Jesus paid the requirement of the law. Let's just read those two verses. I'll read them out loud. Romans 8, 3 and 4. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in the amplified version it says, but he didn't sin. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Here's a summation of what that means. I love this. It's from Dwight L. Moody. He said, law tells me how crooked I am. Grace comes along and straightens me out. Joy had discovered, she's got a cold, so she was at home watching some TV. Hi, honey. And she found this uh, series on TV. It's a zombie series. It's got some good theology in it. It actually does, strangely. I know that sounds perverse, but it actually does. Because what happens in this character arc over time is that you see these people that just lose themselves, and they'll say, yeah, I've lost myself. All I do now is just run around killing zombies all the time. And for what? Just to survive? But what good is it? What kind of life do I have? This is life? And they just kind of go into this dark place. And then they start to realize over time that if they help somebody else learn to survive, that suddenly they have a sense of purpose. And that purpose is through serving other people. And I'm thinking, that'll preach, brother. It's a strange illustration, but that's, I can't help but think that maybe they have started to tack on to some of these kinds of principles that we see in Scripture. And then what we see happening, too, is that somebody who exhibits grace to somebody else, that's the first time somebody gets it. They have to be treated with grace before they're able to give grace to somebody else, and they go, I think I'm understanding it now. My life is filled with something more than myself and more than just survival. And let me go back to that thing about the church worldwide and where we see the churches are growing. There's a sense in every organized church that gets to a plateau denominationally or in a movement where they become so well organized that it becomes institutionalized. It ceases to become interrelational and it, go, it, it ceases to become what it started with because every new church starts with a little small group. You know, I bring the pizza, you bring the pop. In Michigan we say pop, soda, you bring the drinks. And let's do that. And that's how it starts to grow. And then those groups merge together. And then they start having public worship services. And then that grows. And then we have to start saying, well, how are we going to organize to get these growing groups of people, as they did in Acts, in the book of Acts? And then it becomes institutionalized until pretty soon we're just, we got the machinery going. But we tend to lose the power of the Holy Spirit at work in these relationships. And then things tend to decline. And they move down. And they move away from what we know to be our calling to make a difference. And I see that in these zombie shows. These people finally started to rekindle a purpose and they said, we're going to band together, we're going to drop off boxes with walkie-talkies in them and with some food and we're going to say, Channel 4, hit us up if, we can, if you find this and we'll come find you and we'll help you out. The more of us that help each other, the better. And I think that should be the church. Instead of building huge walls around us and barbed wire fences to keep those bad people out, we need to be busting down the walls and going out there to where the bad people are, and we need to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them so they can be found and they can be saved. And if we lose that, we have lost our identity as the church. 
We've got to be gospel-centered, which means we've got to get out of ourselves and start helping some other people. And I know that we can. And when I saw the signs of health, when I walked in this building and I saw all the things happening and the, the joyful spirit with which you people bring with you to do what God's called you to do, and when I see God raising up another pastor training seminar coming up in the Dominican Republic, and I see all these Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes that are going to start to be filled, and I see vibrant small groups that are talking with each other and caring for each other and praying for each other. I love that. I love the church, and I love the fact that you guys are becoming that church, and it's a revised new .2 church or 2.0 or whatever you call it. It's the new refreshed fresh wind and fresh fire church, and I keep seeing every week now more signs of health. Please, let's remind ourselves what Jesus has done for us, that we don't have to feel inadequate, and we can keep being the church that God called us to be because he's going to show us how to do that well. I trust him for that. Not because I'm a great leader. I'm a terrible organizational guy. I'm so grateful that God surrounds me with people who are much better at organization than I am. But I trust the one whose power can transform everybody, including my own heart and spirit. And I pray that you will be transformed by him and that together we will be the church that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, I've sensed the power of your Holy Spirit at work in my own spirit this week, and I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so grateful that you continually remind us how much you have poured out for us, for our benefit. I'm so grateful that we don't have to just kind of throw in the towel and build fences around us to keep the bad people out. I'm so grateful that you keep reminding us of why we exist. And I pray that you will rekindle that fresh wind and a fresh fire in each one of us so that we can live with purpose and introduce other people to the same person who can look at us differently and so we can start seeing ourselves differently. Because we're forgiven. We're new creations in Christ. We don't have to live according to the flesh, any longer. Thank you that you do that for us. I pray that many, many more people will come to that conclusion as well. And I thank you for doing that through us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And in the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen.